0: Welcome to episode 188 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. Today, we are talking astronomical asterisms. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. How are you this morning, Shane? Oh, I'm okay, I suppose. How about you? Well, I'm just as terrific as I could be. (laughs) Okay, that's, that's good to hear. So we've spoken about asterisms in the past, quite a bit, actually. And uh, yeah, what are what are some of the, aster- just off the top of your head, Gene, what are some of the asterisms that we've talked about on the show before? Well,
1: probably the most well-known one that we've talked about is the Big Dipper, uh, yeah. at least for Northern Hemisphere folks. Uh, the Big Dipper is very prominent. Um, you know, we've... T- We've talked about like um, you know the 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 Great square of Pegasus. We've talked about um, the northern cross being Cygnus the Swan. I even remembered one episode we were talking about uh, Buotes and um, you had mentioned, that it looks like a kite to you, and yeah, and I think a lot of others, you know, see the kite. I mentioned it sort of looks like a martini glass to me, but
0: yeah. And then there was the whole fallout between the martini glass observers and the kite observers. Yeah. And, uh, it, was it was a big un- rift in the astronomy community.
1: It was uncontrollable,
0: um, <laughs> and I apologize for lighting the fuse. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Good yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we've talked about Kemble's Cascade a lot in the past, as well as the mm-hmm. uh, as the coat hanger. Um, cluster up in uh, up in Vulpecula, and uh, in the win- winter we've talked about Orion's Belt. We've talked about the Sword of Orion, where where M42 is, and and a bunch of other things. But ba- basically, you know what is an asterism? So um, these are both the most common things to see in the sky. I think the, like these are just basically star patterns of one form or another, aren't they?
1: Well, I what I like about asterisms is I think that this is m- this is probably more realistic, uh, in terms like it, it, the, how people perceive the sky is likely through asterisms. Um, when people see star patterns, it's likely the asterisms that they see because these are the brightest stars up there, you right. know, the constellations, you know, again, if you, if we just talk about, uh, any, like, you know, say the, the big dipper or the Northern cross of Cygnus, um, the asterism is what stands out. If you try Mm -hmm. to draw out the constellation and all of the stars that make up the, uh, you know, say the great bear um, it's a lot harder to see all of those stars. And that's why the asterisms really stand out. And, and like, uh, like I say, for, I think most people looking up, that's what's relevant is the asterism. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And so these asterisms specifically, I really like the term that it's, it's kind of like the dot to dot puzzle in the sky, and really with, with the stars, you can draw your own lines between those. But there's kind of, um, sort of some somewhat somewhat standard sets up there, or you know commonly um, interpreted patterns of stars. Maybe is the best way to put it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh so these uh patterns of stars, um they, they kind of are differentiated a little bit from the constellations, like you were saying, Shane. So that they, they can be um, you know, a grouping of stars that's just in a region, like a constellation, or they can be supersets spanning many constellations. And some of them, uh, some of the stars in these patterns may be physically related as some sort of cluster or moving group, and others may not have any association. So perhaps, like you were saying, uh, about the best known is the Big Dipper asterism, which is part of Ursa Major, the, the great bear that you referred to. Um, but even like a small triangular pattern of stars, maybe somewhere within the, the Big Dipper, um, that that little triangle could also be an asterism, couldn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, and that's what I love about asterisms is they exist at many different levels. Like just naked eye, we see a number of them, but many times when I'm panning through, you know, a field of stars, you'll come across a set of stars that make a pattern or a shape to you. And it's kind of like a mini asterism. Like uh, sometimes you'll come across three stars that make a symmetrical triangle. Uh, other times you may come across like a mini big dipper, you know, in your field of view. And it's really cool when that happens.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to kind of uh, address sort of the uh, the elephant in the sky. There's no elephant in the sky, but I guess we could make <laughs> one. Um, but but that is that um, there there's sort of a confusing um, language here because we're talking about patterns and we're talking about constellations. And and sort of in the common vernacular, when constellations are spoken about, it's typically the patterns in the sky that are being referred to, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. For sure, yep.
0: But technically speaking, those patterns are just asterisms. The constellations themselves are are just the the technical boundary. So I I, I dug up I, I I had made quite a few notes for this, and then I was like, I need something to kind of bring this together. So I actually went to the International Astronomical Union. Uh, website, and they've got a great page on this. If you just simply Google IAU constellations, they have absolutely this tremendous resource on the constellations. They've even got charts there that they've created in conjunction with Sky and Telescope magazine. And so I, I refer people to to that site. Um, and certainly I've spent lots of time on it and use it when I'm when I'm prepping my astronomy classes like, like I'm doing right now. And that's actually sort of what spurred this on. So what does the IAU sam Do you mind if I read this little uh, definition that they've got here? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so the IAU says, originally the constellations were defined informally by the shapes made by their star patterns, but as the pace of celestial discoveries quickened in the early 20th century, astronomers decided it would be helpful to have an official set of constellation boundaries. One reason was to aid in the naming of new variable stars. So that's pretty cool that it kind of, it was, you know, the business of setting up these constellation boundaries was simply uh, to make sure they were naming the variable stars correctly. Uh, It goes on to say, the IAU defines a constellation by its boundaries indicated by sky coordinates and not by its pattern. So when we talk about a constellation, like technically speaking, we're talking about kind of like these invisible uh, boundaries that were created in, I think, like the late 1920s and early 1930s by the IAU, but the patterns themselves are something that's sort of uh, separate and independent of those.
1: Yeah, yeah, kind of interesting, and and maybe I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but what I what I kind of like about it is that um, uh, peoples or, or cultures, you know, can look at the sky and determine. What you know makes sense to them based on their history or or what they see. It, it seems odd to me that you know a singular body would define officially what the patterns are in the sky um, when there's you know different patterns that people can see. <laughs> if that makes sense,
0: yeah. Like no matter where people are in the world or where their culture came from, I mean some some cultures are going to look at the same pattern of stars and they may even draw it the same. Um, but, but one group might see, um, one animal, another group might see another animal, one group might see a structure. Um, and in some cases, um, you know, uh, for example, in, in the case of, uh, Capricornus, I know that early Chinese astronomers um, had a variety of different constellations. And then they sort of had the overall structure, which to me, and this is like my own understanding of it. I'm not a like a cultural astronomer or anything like that. But I find that really interesting because it's like sort of the story within within the story. And for some of the fainter constellations like Capricornus, um, going and, and kind of um doing some research on, on your own to try to, you know, to understand and and look at the at the sky through those different cultural lenses can really um you know create some meaning. And and actually can can make it easier to identify some of the patterns than uh, than maybe some of the dominant patterns that that you might see if you open up just like a, like a standard astronomy text.
1: or something. yeah, for, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: yeah. So it can be a little bit confusing because the asterisms are patterns that help us to navigate the sky, while the constellation just like technically these invisible boundaries. And really, any pattern of stars, large or small, uh, can be connected into some sort of asterism or star pattern, can it?
1: Sorry, just having a sip of water there. You go
0: for it. Don't drown. (laughs) (laughs) Carry on, sir. All right. But to make it simple, uh, as amateur astronomers, we think of each season as having a series of uh, more or less like central uh, asterisms. So Shane, in the the winter sky, now there there was a bit of a discussion um, that I've had with some some people recently about the winter circle or the winter G. Do you ever use this winter circle asterism? Have you ever seen this? Are you, are you more of a winter circle fan or a winter G or a winter hexagon or more of like, you know, you kind of start with Orion and then work your way out from there, person? <laughs>
1: um, I I don't know if I really have any of that, to be honest. <laughs> I, I just, you know, if I'm, I, I just go to the constellation I need, I guess. How How about that?
0: Yeah, that sounds good. And I think I kind of operate the same way, although when when I'm teaching my astronomy class, I'll take this winter circle. And the winter circle includes um, several constellations, includes um, uh, the star, the brightest stars or the brightest stars in sort of each of these constellations, which is Capella and Auriga. We have Castor and Pollux in Gemini. We have Procyon in Canis Minor. We have Sirius in Canis Major. We have Rigel in Orion. We have Aldebaran in Taurus. And then kind of cutting back. To Betelgeuse, if you if you cut that way, um, you'll form this this winter G. And uh, so some people do that, and then some people just kind of connect Aldebaran back to uh, Capella, and that gives them like sort of a hexagon or maybe a a very broken uh, circle. And then um, so when I'm teaching my astronomy classes, what I do is actually take this. Um, Just to make a nice set of constellations, because these, at least, you know, regardless of what you think about a circle or a G or whatever, Shane, these kind of form like the core of the winter constellations. Is that sort of an accurate way to put it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So so this kind of gives us our our core constellations of the winter sky. But like you, Shane, when I go out, um, when I'm going to start my observing, really what I want to do is... Uh, is find like Orion and Sirius and Canis Major, because to me, that's how I get oriented in the night sky. But I know through teaching astronomy classes that um, everybody works a little bit differently on the night sky and people are all coming from different places and uh, sometimes just having that large circle. But sort of one of the challenges I find with the large circle is um, like basically right now in these evenings, for us anyway, Capella is passing almost directly through the zenith. That's the overhead point. And then Ceres is just sort of cutting above the horizon for for, for us here in, in the middle of Canada. And, and so it's hard, at least for me anyway, to kind of see that breadth of sky. I mean, that is really a huge area of sky. So on a star chart, I put a little star chart in our notes. On a star chart, it's pretty simple to look at. Um, but, uh, you know, really, I think that, that one of the easier ways to do it is kind of look for that pattern of Orion and work your way out. From there, how does how does that sound? Does that sound fair?
1: Yeah, yeah. Orion is so prominent; it's uh, it's an easy one to kind of make your anchor to begin from, and I like it.
0: Yeah. So, and inside Orion itself, we have uh, the head of Orion, Lambda Orionis. Um, we have uh, the belt and the sword and the shield. And uh, you know, there's even a huge faint nebula around uh, around Lambda. But we're we're not going to get into that, but Lambda itself, the head of Orion, kind of looks like a fuzzy uh, naked eye um, bit, and and through binoculars, it kind of looks like a like a bit of a scattering of stars. Um, and in fact, um, that Lambda area was first cataloged as. Uh, a bit of a misty spot by uh, the likes of the Al Sufi, uh, who saw it as a misty spot in Orion's head, uh, in amongst other observers um, from you know early days uh, in the formation of astronomy. So uh, Orion also has a belt which encompasses part of an open cluster or, or moving group of stars called Colander 70. So some of the stars are part of a moving group uh group of related stars. And then some of the stars that we see in that belt or the belt region are actually, uh, you know, not related to another. And then we also have the sword asterism. So, so the sword, what is the sword of Orion, uh, Shane? What, uh, what, what makes up the sword of Orion? <laughs>
1: Well, probably the most prominent part of that is the uh, the M forty two nebula, the Great Orion Nebula, forms kind of the bottom tip of the sword.
0: Yeah, and there's there's some stars in there. There's some some other open clusters and other nebula in there. And then easily seen through a three inch telescope are the group of four relatively bright stars. Um, and they they make up the trapezium asterism or the trapezium group, which is inside M42. And those are stars that are identified as A, B, C, and D in the order of right ascension. So I kind of wrote this all and then put this. So here we have an asterism. We have have the winter uh, circle or the winter G, um, and then we have Orion, and then we have the sword, and then we have the nebula in the sword, and then we have... Um, the trapezium in there. So that gives us something like an asterism in an asterism in an asterism in a nebula thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an onion, I suppose, I guess. So it's a bit of an enigma there. So I think that's one of the reasons why asterisms can actually be a little bit confusing because they, they can span many constellations like the winter circle does and covering like virtually almost like half of the entire winter sky. And then you can have things that, you know, require a small telescope using moderately high power in order to see. So that creates a little bit of a confusion and a little bit of a, of a challenge as, as far as understanding exactly what an asterism is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It can definitely be confusing. And and we even mentioned that kind of at the start that they exist at every level, basically. Like you can see them with your eyes, but you can then see them through telescopic views. and you know the the patterns really never end, I suppose.
0: yeah. so you know, and, and I put a couple things in here, but but maybe you you have some on your own. Um, but as far as like a favorite, uh, you know, a couple winter asterisms that people can go look at now. You know, one of my favorite ones, and I wrote about this back in 2013 in the RAC Observer's Handbook, is called the Leaping Minnow up in uh, the constellation of Origa, And it was actually first observed by somebody named G.B. Hodierna in Sicily way back in the mid-1600s. And he compared it to the Sword of Orion. So although like the Sword of Orion is, is a neat asterism for people to go look at, Um, A lot of these listeners um, to to this show maybe have already seen the sort of Orion and and look at it through binoculars, which is a spectacular thing to see. Um, But uh, if they're kind of looking for something maybe a little different or or comparison, maybe go and take a look at the Leaping Minnow. Uh, Do you have anything that uh, sort of is a a favorite winter uh, asterism to to take a look at in in your binoculars or telescope or even just naked eye, Shane?
1: Um, Naked eye? Yeah. Um, I kind of actually like watching the big dipper as it, as it rotates through the seasons, you know, and, and that's all year round, to be honest. Um, you know, I think we're, we're usually used to it more so in the summertime sky. Cause that's when we're out looking, but, uh, it really changes in the, mm-hmm. in the fall and winter and, and spring.
0: Yeah. It kind of starts to cut up overhead and you actually get a, get a pretty good view of it. Uh, you know, especially if you get your sleeping bag and a lounge chair out, you can actually kick back and, and look far up uh, straight overhead almost. And uh, I, cause I think right, right now and into spring, the, the big dipper passes pretty much right through that zenith, that overhead point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It gets really high up there. And uh, it just, again, it's, it's neat to see it in different parts of the sky and almost upside down.
0: Yeah. And, and kind of what makes that neat is that, uh, it, it is such an easily recognizable pattern of stars and it kind of makes you feel sort of oriented and grounded. Uh, you know, when you're looking at the nighttime sky. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. And, and kind of building on that, like uh, maybe we'll just move into, uh, into the spring sky with, with that big dipper, uh, that saucepan, uh, nice and, and overhead. And it, it can really, um, you know, begin to be that leaping point to help you identify some of the first stars. Now, we we've talked in the past about the connection between um, the Big Dipper and uh, and Boots, uh, the Herdsman. So, so how ha- how can you find uh, uh, Arcturus and Boots uh, using the Big Dipper? How does that work?
1: Um, you sort of arc off of the handle of the Big Dipper.
0: Yeah, arc arc to Arcturus. I think mm-hmm. is is the uh, is the set of words that people uh, that people use. And then kind of from, from there, we can look at some of the other, um, you know, sort of key asterisms. So these are kind of just sort of parts, although we see the Big Dipper is kind of like that main part of Ursa Major, like you were saying earlier, the, the bear constellation itself has a lot of fainter stars around it. another. You can trace them out from a darker site, even from my light polluted backyard. I can see most of the stars or all of the stars in the Big Dipper. I can see all the stars in that main uh, kite pattern in boots or botes. And um, and then there's there's another uh, set of asterisms which are really prominent in the in the spring sky that are starting to come up. Uh, they're actually well placed in the morning sky now, and that is the sickle of Leo and the mm-hmm. diamond shape in Virgo, and and sort of between the Big Dipper, uh, boots and the diamond in Virgo and the sickle in Leo. Kind of that sort of forms like that uh, main set. Of springtime asterisms, uh, as far as as far as I was kind of looking at it in, in the notes that I made for the show,
1: yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, the the sickle of Leo is very prominent for me, and and that that stands out every year.
0: Yeah, uh, now some people will connect, and and I could be wrong in this, but but you know, I mean, people can connect any any of the stars they want to form any patterns they wish, um, but some people will connect uh, Regulus, which is in Leo, uh, over to uh, Arcturus, and then down to uh, Spica. In, in Virgo, and that will give them uh, a bit of a, of a spring triangle as well. But I, I don't know, have you ever heard that or seen people talk about that one?
1: No, no, that one's new to me.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't really seen or heard of that either. And the only thing I can think that that is uh, a little bit handy for. Is it can be handy for finding things like uh, Coma Berenices, which sits between uh, Leo and Boots, and uh, has this beautiful uh, open cluster. Uh, They're called uh, the Coma Berenices, um, you know, and and it's it's this beautiful cluster which which has a, a history. We've actually talked about that quite a, quite a bit before, so we're not going to go into it uh, too much. But um, you know, back uh, in the second century AD, uh, a person named Ptolemy, uh he uh, developed. Like uh, you know, or, you know, sort of was building upon previous astronomers and came up with uh, a, a subset of about forty-eight uh, patterns of stars. Sort of uh, this, the sort of Ptolemy's forty-eight early constellations. And um, inside of Coma Berenices, he actually talked about something that looked like uh, an ivy leaf uh, within that Coma Berenices star cluster. And you know, when I was uh, I was drawing it about uh, five or six years ago. And I thought, Ooh, I wonder if I can sort of find that pattern of stars and and, you know it's it's weird because I had drawn the stars, but I hadn't tried to you know draw them in, in, in an attempt to replicate the ivy leaf until I got my uh, my sketches at home and and very easily I, I was able to draw a pattern and then I don't know I'm not a horticulturalist. I don't know what an ivy leaf looks like and so I, I kind of connected what I thought um, you know were the most dominant stars and uh, and sure enough, when I compared that that sketch to uh, to an ivy leaf, uh, sure sure enough. Um, it, it looks pretty close to what an Ivy leaf looks like pretty neat. That's kind of
1: neat how that worked out even.
0: Yeah. Um, what about, uh, what about you, Shane, any, uh, any patterns or, or asterisms that, uh, that really stick out for you in the spring sky? Do you ever, do you ever look at that little one that's near, uh, M one Oh four though? Mm, no, I don't, I don't think, well,
1: I probably have. Um, I don't know if I've really taken note of it though, to be honest,
0: Yeah, there's there's a little it almost looks like a spaceship um, and it's sort of in and around, including a set of stars called Struve uh, 1659 uh, and and sort of those nearby stars. So this is this is a pattern of stars that when you're coming off of Corvus and you're looking for the galaxy called uh, M104, which is a really beautiful galaxy and through uh, larger telescopes, you can actually see this dust lane. Um, so, so it's a very famous uh, galaxy for amateurs to go and look at on, on the way up to that, there's actually this little grouping of stars. Now, some people say it looks like an arrow. Uh, some people say it, it looks like a, like a Klingon battle cruiser or something like this. Um, but yeah, definitely, it's uh, it's a funny little pattern, and uh, and it's sort of been recognized as a funny little pattern going back, you know, since people were first, um, you know, exploring that region of the sky. Because I know in uh, in in T. W. Webb's uh, 1859 edition of of his Celestial Objects for Common Telescopes, he refers to a, a previous observer as having uh, you know noted this as a funny uh, bit of stars that are together, and you know, so that observation is is 200 years old uh, anyway. Oh yeah. Cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty neat. All right. Anything else to add on the spring sky? No, sir. Okay. Moving ahead. We'll, we'll get into the summer sky. We'll warm up. Boy, I sure was looking for the summer sky when, uh, when I was writing this up, uh, you know, this past week. So in the, in the summer, the main pattern, now there's this main big pattern overhead that we teach people when we're out doing, um, public outreach in the summer. And what is that pattern Shane?
1: Uh, the summer triangle, I believe you're referring to. That's right. To. Yeah. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, yes. exactly. So this has those three bright stars, Vega and Lyra, Deneb and Cygnus, Altair, and Aquila. And when we connect those, that, that forms this massive triangle overhead. And uh, overhead, like up into almost that overhead point, which, which we call the zenith point. And no matter where you are on the earth, there's a point directly overhead. And that's called the zenith. And in the summer, um, when we go out to do outreach, of course, uh, as you know, Shane, it's uh, it's bright pretty late. So we're kind of kicking around waiting for it to get dark with, uh, with sometimes with like 100 people or so waiting to look through our telescopes. And so it's always a great exercise to see who can kind of uh, pull out those three stars or it seems like people really get into that, eh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's always surprising even to me sometimes, um, how big it is, (laughs) you know, when you see it on a star chart, it, it, I I don't think the scale is comprehended as well as seeing it in the sky. And it, it's a pretty big swath.
0: Yeah. Again, I, I, kind of struggle almost to see the whole thing in one go. I I think I can just kind of barely see the whole summer triangle. If I sort of sit back in a recliner on a, on a beautiful warm summer evening and look up into that region of sky, you know, I kind of think that I can, I can get most of that bit of the sky sort of into my, into my field of view at the same time. Um, I kind of struggle a little bit with the, uh, with the winter circle to do that because the winter circle is, I I think the winter circle is like four or five times as large or something Mm -hmm, like that. mm Yeah. Cool. All right. So moving on, um, we also have the keystone of Hercules, yep. um, which is just sort of to the, uh, to the West of, uh, of the summer triangle. And, and that is such a unique pattern. I mean, um, just really does kind of look like a keystone in, and, and do you know what a keystone is
1: yeah. Yeah. It's, um, used in archways. Um, and, and basically it's the, like, it's the important stone structurally. It's the important stone that keeps like an arc or an arch, um, stable, I guess, or from collapsing.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's just sort of held in there by pressure. So you have, have that arch of the archway and then the last stone they, they drop in actually creates like pressure in a certain way that, that prevents that stone arch from, from falling. And, uh, certainly if you go over to, uh, you know, certain regions of, of the world, you know, these were used all over the world. Um, you can, you can find some of these stone archways still intact that have been there for millennia, you know, seemingly.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, igloos use a a similar principle too with,
0: um, with that, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's see, you know, and I always thought that was really cool that here we have the keystone of Hercules, which for us anyway, I know for other regions of the world, it's going to, it's going to pass during, uh, like pass, you know, different, different parts of the sky, but for us anyway, it pretty much passes through that Zenith point, that overhead point. So we have this beautiful arching, um, you know, sphere of stars in the summer. And here we have, uh, the keystone sitting right up there, almost, almost towards that overhead point. It's almost like, you know, it is in a way, almost like keeping up that celestial sphere. You know, I know that's sort of, you know, sort of, uh, some nebulous language there, but you know, it is kind of a neat, it is kind of a neat aspect of that pattern.
1: Yeah, it is for sure.
0: Yeah, very cool. So kind of moving on, um, you know, one of the main reasons why we might want to identify a pattern of stars as well, it can just be beautiful to look at. There might be some cultural significance. um, And typically there is cultural significance Uh, with some of these smaller ones, though, we might be just looking at, um, you know, particular patterns that are visible through a telescope, though. But with the keystone of um, Hercules, You can actually use that pattern um, because you know that on um, one of those sides, there's the M13 globular star cluster. So you can find that pattern. You can see it with your eye easily from a dark sky, and then you can use your binoculars to kind of trace out the pattern as you're doing. So you're going to find, um, you know, a really big fuzzy spot. And that fuzzy spot is a globular star cluster. And you might even be able to see that with your unaided eye when you sort of pull your eyes away from the binoculars.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Down towards the south, we have uh, the teapot of Sagittarius. And I, I just love the teapot of Sagittarius because, um, one, I, I do enjoy a good cup of tea, as I know you do as well, Shane. Oh, and, yes. and then, yes, yeah, so you always get excited about that as well. And then there's there's the little teaspoon that's just, just above it, which is uh, super cute. And then uh, coming out of the spout of, of the teapot, uh, sort of towards the, the northeast, we have the the steam uh, sort of looks like a bit of a misty nebulous glow coming right out of that point. And that just happens to be the Milky way. So it almost seems like the Milky way is emanating as steam from the, the spout of the teapot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure it does. And it's just such a beautiful area of the sky to put binoculars or telescope on, or even naked eye, if you're under a dark enough sky. Um, so the, uh, seeing the teapot always makes me happy because that's just such a beautiful place to
0: observe. Yeah. And yeah, when once you can find that, so you can use that, like you were saying, you can use that pattern of Sagittarius, that teapot, which is really prominent for us anyway, it's right on the horizon, easy to see a group of stars. I can even see it here from the city and use it to orient myself. And because I can't see the Milky Way with my unaided eye here from the city, but what I can do is I can find that pattern, come off the spoke, put my binoculars Uh, onto that region of the sky and start scanning up. And I know that I'm in that um, main Milky Way region and I can start to see some nebulas and clusters and that sort of thing. And that's kind of how we use those uh, asterisms, those patterns of stars as a leaping off point to start looking at deep sky objects uh, like nebulas and star clusters, eh? Super handy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of which, do you have any favorite, um, let's see, asterisms or patterns of stars uh, in the summer sky maybe that, that you can see through binoculars? Yeah, the, the same
1: one you've noted here and that we've talked about already, which is the coat hanger. Um, it's, a, it's an awesome asterism. I, I think it's really neat. Um, and uh, you can see that naked eye too under the right conditions. So yes. that's kind of neat as well.
0: Yeah, and, the, and this asterism of the coat hanger cluster, it's really cool because uh, it looks just like the name coat hanger cluster. Um, you know, it might make you think of a coat hanger, and that's exactly what it looks like through a pair of binoculars, which is super fun to show people when we're at a star party and we put a, a low power, a small telescope on it, and then people look in and we say, hey, this is the coat hanger cluster. And people are, are blown away by that, kind of almost in a similar respect of when we show them the, the rings of Saturn. Eh?
1: Yeah, Exactly.
0: Yeah, it's very cool. So to to find this though, um, you, you actually can can look at previous um, observer records, like from Al Sufi or from Tolme. and uh, they the I think in Al Sufi's records he put that the uh, the coat hanger is about or or the misty spot in in this region of the skies he referred to it as is right between um, Lyra and Aquila, and so if you follow that line from Vega to Altair. It's about two thirds of the way to Altair along that line, and so if you just take your binoculars and you scan on that straight line from uh, Vega to uh, Altair, um, as you get closer to to Altair, you actually come across this uh, this little pattern of stars that looks just like a coat hanger in the sky. It's very cool. Yeah, it is, and it's also very neat to use like somebody's guidance from uh, you know well over a century ago, you know, or millennia ago, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very cool. All right, moving on to the uh, the autumn sky, sort of our, our last kind of stop along here. We're just trying to sort of cover off, you know, sort of the main asterisms in, in all of the sky. People can refer to this in the future. Maybe we'll dig a little deeper on asterisms in the future, but uh, the, the autumn sky has the beautiful W of... Cassiopeia, Cassiope near the zenith. So, so Shane, I don't know about you, but I don't see a chair when I look at Cassiopeia. So often it's referred to as Cassiopeia's chair. So are you a chair or a W person?
1: Well in the summertime I'm a W person, but at other points in the year, I <clears throat> I I can see the chair. It mm. it's still, you know, it's still like a you know, a three to me or an E sometimes, <laughs> but but like when it's more okay. on its side. I can see, I can see the chair. It kind of makes sense to me. Um, But again, you know, it, uh, it depends what time of the year, but Cassiopeia does change.
0: Yeah. Depending on, depending on its orientation, eh? Yes. Yeah. 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 So for, for me, I almost always see cat, the, the Cassiopeia um, asterism as a as a w sort of that main figure in cassiopeia i see that as as a large w i think it was i think sort of after the big dipper and orion and maybe maybe uh, boots or something like that um You know, I was able to identify Cassiopeia as a W, but um, oftentimes uh, people identify typically the Big Dipper first when they're learning the nighttime sky and then sort of opposite the Big Dipper, um, uh, opposite uh, the Big Dipper kind of moving along in the direction opposite the pole star is Cassiopeia. So typically what a lot of uh, people who are getting going in astronomy will do is they'll identify the big dipper. Okay. Now I know that what's the next thing I want to learn. Well, if you can find Cassiopeia sort of on the other side of Polaris and the other side of the North star, um, now you found the big dipper, you found the North star, you found Cassiopeia, and then you can really start branching out in both directions and really beginning to, to learn the whole night sky. I think that's actually a pretty easy way for people to begin, uh, learning the star patterns in the sky. eh?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, so it's really um, you know it's really easy to see that W though, and I, I just love it. It just it just feels like home when I look when I look at Cassiopeia because I can always see it no matter where I am in Canada.
1: Yeah, you know, and and one of the things that I'm kind of bad for is because like Cassiopeia, uh, Big Dipper, like all of that part of the sky, it's always there for us. I sometimes don't spend enough time observing it because I always think, oh, I can do that next week, next time, whatever. Um, and, uh, the, the one summer, this was, uh, just before, uh, the pandemic, I think the, the last free summer that we've had. <laughs> and, um, that was when, uh, I think you had uh, written an article on Cassiopeia. And then one night in the summertime in grasslands, we just spent the entire night observing stuff in Cassiopeia, which I've never done. I've never dedicated that much time to that part of the sky during the summer. And it was awesome. <laughs> it was really fun.
0: Yeah, so uh, just just kind of fill people in. What what I do is every year I write a little bit with uh, with with my friend Randall and uh, and whoever the editor of the uh, of the RAC Observer's Handbook is, and and we include a bit of history about uh, a region of the sky. We include a few asterisms, uh, whole pile of deep sky objects that you can see there, and then we kind of distribute that that freely. So that, that's that's what we're doing. But when I'm creating those, what I like to do is is bring together. Um, kind of like a bit of a list and uh, go out with my friends to observe that list. So I think, I think that year um, you, myself, uh, Mike, uh, Rick, maybe there was somebody else there and uh, we all kind of gave it a go and and went and looked at, uh, at the stuff that I kind of selected. And uh, it's really helped sort of to, to evolve, uh, you know, what what we're all looking at at the nighttime scan. It's really fun to kind of work on a bit of a group project, uh, you know, together as, as we enjoy those nice warm summer evenings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, Again, it, it, it sort of motivated me to look at a part of the sky that I just often neglect for, for no good reason other than that it's always there. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, the main constellation in the autumn sky, though, uh, for me anyway, isn't uh, isn't Cassiopeia. It's the uh, it's the Great Square of Pegasus. It, it's huge. It's again, you know, like you were saying earlier, Shane, with with the triangle, and I was saying with the winter uh, circle. It, it is a huge area, almost bigger than you can imagine, even when you see it on the on the chart. And I, I looked it up because I was I was thinking like, how big is it? And just just according to like a quick internet search. Um, it's over 1100 square, square degrees. It's
1: huge. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's massive. Really?
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think like on its shortest side, it measures just about a dozen uh, degrees across. And then on the longer side, I think it's like 17 and a half or 18 degrees or, or something like that. It, it really is um, quite large and it can, it can be a little bit difficult because the stars that make up uh, the great square aren't necessarily like super bright. There are some of the brighter stars in the autumn sky, um, but they're not really bright stars like we have when, when it comes to like the winter circle or, or the uh, summer triangle or or some of the other patterns that that might be more prominent and easier to help to pull out. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like the house, uh, Cephas, uh, the house of Cephas in, in the fall as well. That one always stands out to me quite a bit.
0: Okay, excellent. Yeah. Um, Sorry, just like really quick, with the square of Pegasus, the other thing that can make it a little bit confusing is the top left or the northeastern star is Alfred, which is actually part of the constellation of Andromeda. So the the four stars that make the big square, only three of them are sort of in that proper uh, sort of constellation boundary of Pegasus. But the pattern itself for the square of Pegasus actually begins to include stars, um, you know, in another constellation, the constellation of Andromeda. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said earlier, like I referred to earlier, in, uh, in many cultures going back, um, you know, throughout through the millennia, um, you know, different cultures would include, um, you know, different stars from different constellations and go in that direction. And that can really be uh, an interesting path to, uh, to do some, some of your own personal research from, you know, and, uh, you know, try to figure out, you know, some of those older uh, and different constellations, maybe than what are just sort of the dominant ones that, that are in the software, in the history books. And I think there's even software now, and there's different resources that are becoming more and more available for people to, uh, to explore some of those some of those patterns. We're just kind of keeping this um, a little bit simple here, just, just while we work through this. So I just want to mention that again, because a lot of different cultures have a lot of different patterns. Um, some of the different patterns here, though, just sort of in, in our own software that, that we have, is right below that great square, we have the circlet of Pisces. And then just to the right or just to the west of that, we have uh, sort of the sideways Y of the water jar in Aquarius. And I don't know, I don't know why Shane, but I really love that sideways why of the water jar in Aquarius. I feel like even though those stars aren't really bright, they're bright enough that usually you can see them um, from the city here where I live anyway. And they really jump out to me. And I just love looking at that sideways. Why of the water jar, just again, it's one of those little patterns um, that's unique and it really makes me feel like I'm at home in sky in the sky.
1: Yeah. that That's an interesting one. That one, doesn't resonate with me as, as strongly actually, but, um, mm. you know, it's, it is evident. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, no, we were, we were looking at it. I think the last time we were observing together, we were actually looking at that one. I'm like, Oh, there's the water jar. And you're like, where is it? I'm like pointing it out. And you're like, yeah, I'm like, no, it's the water jar, Shane. And you're like, yeah, I'm more of a Cassiopeia chair guy tonight kind of thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Um, when it comes to looking at um, some smaller asterisms through your binoculars. Uh, what, I think I know what the answer to this one's going to be, but what's your favorite binocular asterism to hunt down in the autumn sky chain?
1: Ooh, well you think, so what's your guess for me?
0: <laughs> I was, I was going to say, it's probably going to be Kemble's cascade and Camelopardalis.
1: Yeah. It's pretty hard to argue with that one, especially with, uh, the, the, kind of the local ties to father Lucy and Campbell, who, um, uh, you know, I guess was sort of the discoverer of that, or at least yeah. uh, brought it to prominence and, um, yeah. And it's really cool to look at. I, I think it's a beautiful chain of stars.
0: Yeah. So there's this beautiful chain up in Camelopardalis, which is not the Northern camel. It is the Northern draft. So we always have to get that straight. And, um, yeah it just looks like this beautiful cascade of stars and then it pools down into the beautiful open cluster NGC 1502 and uh yeah so it was found by um Father Lucien Kemble who was, uh uh he, anyway he he was uh, an observer who lived uh just uh Really, a few kilometers from where you live, Shane, mm-hmm. and uh, and he was using his seven by thirty five binoculars. He had a variety of other telescopes, but in an observatory. But he was just using his binoculars one night and scanning through uh, Camelopardalis, which is sort of a one of the lesser known constellations and one of the fainter constellations. And he happened upon this really uh, brilliant uh, grouping of stars that kind of ends up in this uh, in this open cluster. And then he wrote into uh, Walter Scott Houston in Sky and Telescope magazine, and and it ended up being called the uh, Kemble's cascade which is uh, just sort of a beautiful um a, a beautiful pattern of, of very colorful uh stars and then the, the runner-up for me anyway is the uh is the cosmic question mark in the head of Setus. uh right in the head of Setus, there's this uh sort of question mark uh pattern that that looks kind of neat so so that's sort of our tour of of asterisms, a bit of an explanation of what asterisms are, and uh, a tour of some of the larger cornerstone asterisms in each of the seasons, as well as some of our favorite uh, binocular uh, asterisms that that people can can look at if if they so choose. So, do you have anything to to add to this? Shane, I have some resources to put in, but maybe you have some other comments or other asterisms that uh, you'd like to raise to people's attention.
1: No, no, we covered off everything that I was going to talk about. I'm good.
0: All right. Sounds good. So some of the resources is the astronomical league has a great, um, asterisms certificate program. I know a lot of, uh, the listeners uh, are members of the AL or the astronomical league, and they created that with Sue French took them about three years to create it. Um, I haven't really worked through it. I'm not too much of a list person myself, but, um, I have looked at that quite a bit. I've pulled out a few of the asterisms they've had in there over the years and, uh, and gone and taken a, a look at things. I really enjoy reading anything that Sue French has been involved in. I think she, she's a tremendous observer. Um, star clusters by archnal and Hines, And so in the star clusters book, they actually compile, um, you know, and the book is, is just about 20 years old now, but um, it's really not out of date. A lot of the stuff doesn't change too much, but they've compiled a list of all the prominent star clusters and uh, asterism associations uh, that have been discovered by professionals and amateurs alike. And I know there was the Deep Sky Hunters group that was pretty active for a while trying to ferret a lot of the stuff out, Um, you know, a lot of different observers, uh, you know, over the world is going to start listing some, but but it gets pretty long as well. Um, And if you are interested in that sort of uh, information, uh, Sue French's book, Deep Sky Wonders, uh, and Phil Harrington's Touring the Universe Through Binoculars are great resources for finding out more information about um, some of those uh, asterisms, smaller asterisms um, that have been discovered by other observers from from all over the world over the years, which is uh, pretty cool. Yeah, and for do you sure. have any resources that, that you want to share? <laughs>
1: Uh, not when it comes to asterisms entirely. Well, yeah, um maybe one. Um in your planetarium software, you can often turn on asterisms mm. um and like Sky Safari, which you and I both use and talk about a lot. Yeah. Uh you can um like in the kind of what's up tonight uh, part of Sky Safari, like you can, you know, see which planets are visible and the best clusters and all this stuff. Um there is an option for asterisms. So if you're curious, go in there because when you turn on the asterism switch, yeah, it's like, holy cow, there's a lot of stuff up there that that is sort of officially documented. It's kind of neat.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's really cool. Um, and and to, to conclude though, um, we're kind of wondering uh, what people are looking at. Are people looking at, at asterisms? Are, are people just looking at those main patterns or are people just using their go-to telescopes these days? Um, and yeah, if, if anybody wants, we'd be fascinated to to know um, what asterisms you you are looking at. Are you looking at smaller asterisms like the coat hanger, or have you found like your own asterisms? Uh, you can send us an email and let us know your favorite asterisms or anything that you found up there in in the sky that are really interesting patterns or, or dots that are that you're connecting together. You can send us uh, those observations and, and details to actual actual astronomy. Our address is actualastronomy at gmail.com. And thanks, Shane. And thanks, everybody, for listening.
1: Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.